Welcome everybody, my name is Makal Dasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 15, Islamic History, Pre-Islamic Legends. So, when does Christian history begin? Mark starts his gospel with the baptism of Jesus, fully adult, well into his ministry. But Matthew, for example, considered this incomplete, and put in a genealogy and a history of the infant Jesus. Can you imagine Christmas without that? We can do the same with Islamic history, which usually starts in 610 with the first revelation. By that time, Muhammad was already 40 years old, and the conditions that would shape the rest of his life were already centuries, if not millennia, in the making. And I don't mean just standard Arabian history. Islamic history dates back to Abraham. Well, Adam, really. And there are some stories that are critical to understanding Islam that actually predate Muhammad. This includes most of the Old Testament, but I'm not going to rehash stories you already know. Abraham is a big deal in Islam, as is the story of him sacrificing Isaac. It's so big, actually, it's a Muslim holiday. But again, you know that story. So what I did was pick out five stories of pre-Muhammad lore to share with you. Number one, how Yathrib became Jewish. Yathrib is the city that became known as Medina after Muhammad brought his people there. And he was invited there to solve the disputes between the Arabs and the Jews in the city. But how on earth did Jews become a prominent faction in a Western Arabian city? It is a good 500 miles from Southern Israel. It didn't happen immediately, but through several waves of immigration, to a place Jews began to re regard as a Jewish-friendly city. It should be noted that, at the time, Jews viewed Arabs as their cousins. They were religiously different, but hyper-similar ethnically and linguistically. This was before the Ashkenazi Jews even existed, meaning the Jews who lived for millennia in Europe. Jews and Arabs would have looked exactly the same. So when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem in 589 BC, some fled south to what they hoped would be a welcoming area. Yathur became one of its favored cities, and once a Jewish community was established there, it encouraged more immigrants to come. Successive waves came in 64 BC when Pompey attacked Judea, in 70 AD after the destruction of the temple, and in 136 AD when Hadrian was persecuting Jews in the Roman Empire. Jewish clans appeared to be the main power in Yathrib for quite some time, owning the best land and fortifying their positions with castles. It wasn't until around 500 AD, a hundred years before Muhammad, that Arabs managed to wrestle back the upper hand in Yathrib with the help of refugees from Yemen, which is in the south. By the time Muhammad came along, the Jews and Arabs were fighting like, well, Jews and Arabs as we know them. They had just finished a major war, with no one even dreaming of a lasting peace. That sound familiar? Really, the only thing that has changed in the last 1,500 years is the place of conflict, a little bit to the north, and of course, the religion of the Arabs. Story number two, the elephant. Long after Abraham and Isaac built the Kaaba, per Islamic belief, and Mecca had become a wicked city of pagans, Mecca remained a holy place. Even as blasphemous idols filled the Kaaba, and before Muhammad purified the city, 
Mecca was always a holy place. How do we know this? Because even if people had long forgotten that Mecca was a holy place that should be dedicated to the one God, the elephants never forgot. This incident happened around 570, the year Muhammad was born. Mecca was being invaded from the south by Abraha, a Christian Abyssinian, which is basically an Ethiopian as we know them. Remember that a later Christian king would save the Muslims when Mecca was persecuting them, but for this story, the Abyssinians are actually the bad guys. Technically, Abraha was working on behalf of the kingdom of Aksum, which is pretty much where Ethiopia is now, but expanded across the Red Sea into the southwest of the Arabian Peninsula. If the name Aksum sounds familiar, legend has it that that is the city that holds the Ark of the Covenant somewhere in a local church. So Abraha invades from Yemen with a large army that included 13 elephants. He wanted to smash the Kaaba and presumably all the idols in it. One thing that makes the story fascinating is that Muslim sources and later believers universally portray these invading Christians as the bad guys and the Meccans as the good guys. You got that? The alpha males of idol smashing, the Muslims, believe God was helping to shield a building full of idols from a monotheistic, non-idol-worshipping king. Muhammad would basically do the exact same thing 50 years later, and God confirms he was on the Arabs' side in Surah 105 of the Quran. My guess is that the key difference between Abraha and Muhammad is that Abraha wanted to wreck the building itself. Muhammad only purified the inside of it. This story seems to establish that the Kaaba was always holy, regardless of what was happening inside of it. Still, this seems like much more of an Arab nationalist story than an Islamic one, and that's a distinction a secular Islamic scholar could probably make an entire book out of. Okay, so Mecca seemed doomed to fall, but remember that God's armies need not consist only of men. God drafted birds into the fight conducting the world's first aerial bombardment as the avian soldiers dropped rocks on the invading army. But the bigger story was an elephant mutiny. They refused to move toward Mecca. The story focuses on one elephant in particular. He even has a name, Mahmoud. And yes, Mahmoud comes from the same Arabic root as the name Muhammad. I doubt this is a coincidence. So Mahmoud kneels down and won't move toward the city. They beat him with metal rods and stabbed him with hooks, but the elephant would not move toward Mecca. They tried directing him in any other direction, and he was willing to move in any other direction, running even, but would only kneel when he was faced toward Mecca. This was eventually repeated by all of the elephants, and the invading army began to fall apart. What followed was a mass desertion, and Abraha retreated back to Yemen, where he immediately died after telling the people what had happened. His death was pretty dramatic. From Oxford's The Life of Muhammad, which is a translation of an extremely early Islamic history, quote, Abraha was smitten in his body, and as they took him away, his fingers fell off one by one. Where the finger had been, there arose an evil sore exuding pus and blood, so that when they brought him to Sana, which is a city in Yemen, he was like a young fledgling. They allege that as he died, his heart burst from his body. Unquote. 
Less dramatically, he probably died of smallpox, which apparently coated the area following the invasion. It probably played a role in killing the army, too, but who cares about that? The elephant is the key to this story, in which an Old Testament-style god enlists the elements to aid his people in a battle. Story number three, Wariz and the Yemen King. This story is the ancient Arabic equivalent of the movie The Dirty Dozen. And like the Year of the Elephant, it involves Yemen. Yemen is still under Abyssinian control, and its king was, I believe, the son of Abraha from the previous story. A man named Abu Mora petitions the great powers to the north, Byzantium and Persia, complaining that his land is full of ravens. Uh, not the birds. This is actually, at the time, a racial slur. In Arabia, raven was derogatory slang for black people, meaning Abyssinians. It's actually fascinating to think of the racial politics of this area before Islam, because despite being separated by only the Red Sea, Abyssinians and Arabs looked very, very different. Anyway, Abu Mura struck out in Byzantium, but found an audience with the Persian king. He convinces the king to empty his condemned prisoners, those who were sentenced to die, and order them to fight to free Yemen. The total ended up being 800, so... You could call them the Dirty 800. This band of miscreants would be commanded by a man named Wariz, W-A-H-R-I-Z, who was so old his eyes were perpetually half shut. So they left Persia in boats and attacked in Yemen at Aden. During the battle, Wariz spots the king of the opposing army. He takes a supposedly unbendable bow had his soldiers fastened back his drooping eyelids, and he managed to shoot the opposing king through the head. For the cost of 800 soon-to-be-dead prisoners, Persia now had a tax-paying vassal in Yemen. Persia appointed a king, who was soon killed by his slaves, and after this, Persia then sent Wariz with 4,000 men to ethnically cleanse Yemen. In other words, racial genocide. Even by ancient standards, this was a brutal and racist order to kill every Abyssinian or anyone who was mixed Abyssinian and Arab. Wariz was told not to leave a single man alive that had crisp, curly hair. In other words, kill all the black people. Two comments on this story. First, this happened during the mid-570s when Muhammad was a child. This gives you an idea of the racial environment Muhammad walked into making it all the more extraordinary he explicitly banned racism right from the start. It also highlights why Meccans like Abu Sufyan may have freaked out when the slaves of Mecca were being empowered by Muhammad. Not long ago, empowered slaves had killed an Arab ruler, and empowering Abyssinian slaves, of which there were many, is even worse. Second comment, the consequences of this event still reverberate. The historic connection between Persia and Yemen is actually still there today. Iran is modern-day Persia, and the Persians are fighting a proxy war in Yemen with the caretakers of Mecca in place of the Abyssinians. This connection dates back to Wariz and the invasion of Yemen, and is currently cemented by the large Shia population of Yemen. Story number four, how the Kaaba became a pagan temple. According to Islamic tradition, the Kaaba, 
which is that giant cube in Mecca, was first built by Adam, then rebuilt on the same foundation by Abraham. Then it was pretty much absent from the monotheistic holy scene until Muhammad took Mecca. So for about 3,000 years, the Kaaba was a pagan shrine. And how did this happen? If God ordered Abraham to build the Kaaba, how was it lost? Well, gradually the people began to confuse the creation with the creator. As Mecca began to grow, people left in search of more space. When each family left, they took a stone from the Kaaba with them. Then, when they reached their new home, they began worshipping the stones. Confusing the Kaaba rocks with the God of Abraham and Ishmael, they quickly devolved into idol worship until they were no different than the other hapless fools in the region. The Kaaba remained, as did some of the sacred rites performed by Abraham and Ishmael, but it was hollowed out and devoid of its original meaning. There are some interesting stories from Islamic sources regarding this era, including a couple who were turned to stone after having sex in the Kaaba, and a man who brought his camels to a sacred rock in the hopes it would bless his camels. Instead, the camels were scared off by the smell of blood from the many sacrifices performed there. Soon, every town had its own pagan shrine, and even every household had its own idol. This would be the world Muhammad would eventually challenge. Story number five, Ishmael and Hagar. Many of you have likely heard the story of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert, but for those who haven't, here it is from Genesis 21, 15 to 19. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look at the death of my own child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. The Islamic version of this story isn't really that different, adding a bit more detail and drama to the discovery of the well. It goes something like this. Hagar looked for water, but could not find it. She ran frantically between two famous hills in what is now Mecca, praying at the top of each one. Eventually, God sent Gabriel to her, Gabriel dug his heel into the ground, and water began to flow from the earth. The Islamic story also emphasizes two major themes of this story that the biblical account does not. One, the water itself, the Zamzam well. In the Islamic story, this wasn't just God finding water in the desert for Hagar and Ishmael. It wasn't like manna in the desert or just some random miracle. The place was important, too. The biblical account doesn't really care exactly where this happened. It was somewhere around Beersheba, which is today roughly south-central Israel. But the Islamic story takes place in Mecca, right next to where the Kaaba is. The well is called Zamzam, 
which means stop flowing. This is what Hagar said, stop flowing, as the water gushed out of the earth. The well is still there, and its water is considered sacred. The hills Hagar ran between are also marked in the modern complex around the Kaaba, making this a critical origin story in Islam. And two, God's promise to Hagar and to Ishmael through Hagar that he would make a great nation of Ishmael. For those of you who aren't familiar with the biblical story, the important part to remember is that Abraham married Sarah, but she couldn't have a son, at least for a while. And so Abraham had a son through his Egyptian slave, Hagar. Then later, Sarah was miraculously able to give birth to a boy named Isaac, but Hagar and Ishmael were still around. Sarah didn't like this, so Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. That's what sets up the Genesis story I mentioned before. Now, Ishmael is considered the father of the Arabs and spiritually a key patriarch of the Muslims. As a scholar named Louis Messignon would later say, Islam was God's response to the tears of Hagar. It was the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham's unwanted son. This is usually read as God's promise to make the Arabs a great nation. But through Islam, because it is a universal religion, the metaphor can run much, much deeper. The promise to Hagar is God's promise to the downtrodden, to the slave, to the castaway, to the unfairly oppressed, those who were stomped on by the powerful and selfish for no good reason. So those are the five pre-Islamic legends I wanted to share. I'm hoping to make Islamic history a monthly feature, just like readings from the Quran and the Hadith. Next month, we'll dive into some stories about Muhammad's birth and childhood. So thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.